to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as Christ is subject, uh, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to her, present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live a long life on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Lord, we know your heart. Um, Lord, I, as, as I hope is the case in, in every approach to Scripture, that there would be this reverent fear and trembling and even joy that would happen in our hearts. That we'd come before you and say, Lord, we, we want to know you. We, we want to know what you have to say. And so we surrender to you um, our own perspectives. We surrender to you um, even our own places of, of hurt and pain um, and say, Lord, we, we know that in you is the way of everlasting life. We know that in you there is, there is goodness and there is joy. Um, so, would, Lord, would you be speaking to us? And uh, we pray that in your name. Amen? Amen. Please have a seat. I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm nervous this morning. Uh, and, and the reason being is I want, I want to start here because I want to acknowledge that um, is that this section of Scripture over the, the history of the church has been has been used in ways and approached in ways that have caused hurt, um, that have caused pain. Um, not only that, um, there are 
over the history of the church, a lot of different ways that the church has viewed this. And that remains, that remains the case around the globe. You read this passage in any church setting today, and there will be different things happening in, in everyone's mind um, in the same room. Um, and, and so, listen, like with all scripture, we, we hope to approach it with the, with the level of discernment and wisdom and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, right? We approach it in the way that says, Lord, we want to hear what you're saying. We want to hear what you're up to. And I, what I do want to say on the front end, front end as well is, listen, we've, we, the, the big C church, have divided over a passage that is a reflection on how spirit-influenced people live out their oneness. And we've abused one another in our use of a passage that is a reflection on how spirit-influenced people willingly and lovingly place their lives under one another. Right? Like, the, 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 the trajectory of this passage is, is that God is moving us into a place where he's saying, I have no partiality. Yet, for some reason, we've created these places of hostility with one another. And... Um, and so here's what I'm, what I'm hoping to do this morning, um, recognizing that this is a passage that is talking about really personal things. Um, it's a passage that's talking about marriages. Um, it's a passage that's talking about parenting. It's a passage that's talking about our relationship with our fathers. And it's a passage that's talking about slavery. <laughs> right? No small things. No, no small things at all. But hopefully, what we do here, and again, this is, this is what my hope is, is, is I, I want to make observations about the passage. Uh, usually, I start with a story or a study or um, some kind of observation that helps just set the culture or the, the, the context for what we're going to be talking about this morning. But uh, I've got the laptop out today. Um, and, and, and this morning's going to be a bit more academic in nature. We're going to talk about bigger context. We're going to talk about sentence and paragraph structures. We're going to talk about Greek word definitions. Um, because what I hope to be doing in these observations is, to, is, is this, is to make this big observation. Everything that we read in this passage must be read in the context of what Paul is doing in the entire book of Ephesians. And where we get ourselves into trouble in any reading of Scripture is when we take a passage of Scripture, pluck it out, and just let it stand all by itself, right? And so what we want to be able to do is say, what's the context for the text? What, what are we reading, and what is, what is the overarching theme or thesis that this biblical author is bringing to us? And so you've, you've seen this. I think I've brought this forward about half a dozen times as we studied through the series, but, and, and you might be sick of it already, but I hope it's something that's ingrained in your mind. There is a big overarching context that Paul is bringing forward to us in the book of Ephesians. And so the way that he structures Ephesians chapter 1 in this one run-on sentence is 
that he creates it in a way so that it moves in to this climactic point, to this summit. Almost imagine that moving upward and then moving back downward so that we would be at this peak point where we would get his central point, which is this. And this is the plan at the right time he, Jesus, or God, will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Everything is being united in Jesus. Everything is coming under his lordship. And then the way that Paul structures Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, he does that same thing. So there's this climactic moment right in the middle of Ephesians chapter 2. Right in the middle of that chapter are these highlighted words. You can see the whole section, but these highlighted words, it's this. Together we are his house. And we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And so Paul's, Paul's view in the book of Ephesians is, listen, everything is being united in Jesus. Church, we're the example of this. Church, we're the foretaste of this. Church, we're the signpost of this. And as the world observes how we interact with one another in oneness, it'll be a declaration to them of where God is leading all of creation. This is where God is taking everything, right? That's, that's the overarching theme. And so what Paul does then, again, in Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 3, he's doing big theological statements. He's giving us these big theological, doctrinal, like just heavy lifting kind of statements that we were to interact with. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, he turns the page and he could just, it's filled with therefores. Therefore, 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 so you should live in such a way. And so when he turns that page in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, these are some of the words that Paul says. God has united all things. Therefore, therefore, starting in verse 2 of chapter 4, always be humble and gentle. This is the application of this. The big theological truths that God is uniting heaven and earth, what's your response? Always be gentle and humble. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. God is uniting all things together, so what's our application? We bear with one another. We make space for each other to make mistakes. We live together in peace. Now, let me make another observation. The other observation is the structure observation. When Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, what he does is in Ephesians chapter 5, he, he has this statement that says, don't be drunk. The contrast of that, the opposite of that, would be that you would be influenced by the Holy Spirit. And this is where our Bible structures, when we're looking at the Bible structures, the way that the headers of the Bibles can somehow, uh, in, in some ways, give us a different emphasis than what Paul is actually bringing before the church. And, and that's where, I, I believe, my own personal vantage point is, is that's where we end up with, with some, some approaches to Scripture that aren't what Paul is emphasizing for us. What is he emphasizing for us? Here's the flow. Be filled with the Spirit. And that's why I'm reading from the New King James, because what the New King James does, it puts commas after that. Be filled with the Spirit. What are the markers of being filled with the Spirit? Well, here are four markers. That you speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
you speak to one another in a way that sounds like the poetry of Scripture. Another marker of the Holy Spirit, a Spirit-influenced people, there's singing and there's melody in our hearts, right? There's, there's this rejoicing, there's this song, there's this adoration for Jesus that happens in our hearts. What's another marker of being a Spirit-influenced person? You're going to give thanks to God in all things through Christ Jesus. And what is another marker what well, depends on what Bible you're reading from. No, right? No, and that's the thing, is that we could put a period there, but the way that the flow is, Paul has a, there's no, there's actually no commas or periods in the original Greek, right? And so that's why we're trying to figure out how do we, how do we format this? And I, man, I, I don't want to be in the shoes of a, of, a, of a Bible translator, right? Because how do you do this? It's easy to like, to show like, keynotes and say this is what it looks like and this is how it's formatted and to walk through it but how do you translate things in a way to show that what paul is doing he's saying submit to one another and then what he's doing in there he's going "Ooh, let me zoom in on that for you let me zoom in on that for you you guys have ever seen maps where there's these little boxes off to the side that show a, a zoomed in portion of of the bigger piece and that's what paul's doing here but how do you show that in a Bible translation. But that's what he's doing here is like, submit to one another. Why? Why does he stop and say, let me zoom in on that for you? Because if you are in Ephesus, you live in the Greco-Roman Empire. You live in the Roman Empire. And what you're doing as Paul is, is, is this letter from Paul is being read to your house church. You're nodding along. You're nodding along. You're like, yeah, be a spirit-influenced person. Speak to one another. In Psalms and hymns, the spiritual, yeah, Paul, right on. And, he's, and it's continuing to be read out loud in front of the church, singing and making melody in your heart. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Give thanks to God in all things through Christ Jesus. Yeah, right on. Submit to one another. <coughs> Wait a minute. What? What do you mean? And the reason there would be a record scratch moment is because can I bring to you what the, 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 theolo the philosophy of the day was? Here's this quote. Oh, by the way, if we're not, talking, if we're not just going to talk about relationships, marriages, relationships with our fathers, uh, how to parent, and, and slavery, let's also throw in politics. So here's a quote. Here's a quote from Aristotle's politics. This is the mindset. This is the philosophy of the day, of household management. We have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of master over slaves, which has been discussed already. Another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw, rules over wife and children, both free. But the rule differs. The rule over his children being royal, and the rule over his wife is based on natural constitution. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and more mature. Right? So, so you're sitting there in the church, and this is how you've viewed culture, society, the function of the home. This is your mindset. And the, and, and the culture around you is built on hierarchy and superiority. The culture around you is built on the husband is naturally superior to the wife. 
The culture around you is, is that the dad rules over his house like a king. And the children must submit and obey in every kind of a way. And, and the culture around you says there are slaves and then there are inferior humans. And so when you're hearing Paul in this context, and you, the Roman centurion, is sitting next to another person named Onesimus who is a slave, and Paul says, submit to one another, there's now tension in the room. What do you mean? Paul, you got to say more on that. What do you mean submit to one another? What does that look like? Right after this church gathering, we're going to go back into the field. Right after this gathering, we're going to go back into our own homes. Everything around us is, the culture around us is telling us this is the natural order of things. Not only that, Paul, if I start treating Onesimus in a way where I free him, he's going to get killed by Rome. I, I can't just release him and let him go walk around free because he'll die. How do we live this out? And I, and I, I believe what Paul's approach to be, to be here is, listen, here's your context. Church in Ephesus. Here's what your context is. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to face unnecessary persecution. But our starting point still has to be Jesus. So how do we wisely live in our context in a way that shows the world there's a better way? And that's, because of that, that's why there's so much conversation and dialogue around this passage as the body of Christ. Because what we've got to do is look at the principles that Paul is bringing before the church of Ephesus, and with our own wisdom and discernment and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we've got to say, then how do we live in our day and age in a way that is the starting point is Jesus? And the starting point cannot be conservatism or progressivism. The, the starting point cannot be all of these other isms. The, the starting point cannot be this is how it was done in my home. The starting point has to be Jesus. And there's tension there. And there will be differences there in the body of Christ. And so what I hope to do going forward is to make some observations that what I, my, my hope 
is that the, the observations that I'm going to bring before you are staying in line with the overarching theme of the book of, of Ephesians. How, how do we read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through chapter 6, verse 9, in a way that keeps in mind that this is a therefore statement? Therefore, live this way. So, <laughs> here's, here, here we go. Submit to one another, wives to your husbands. Submit to one another, wives to your husband. Observation number one for this passage, for this little section, is there's actually no verb in, in chapter 5, verse 22. In the original Greek, there is, I, I put a little snapshot, it might be hard to see, but there's no, there's no verb there. And actually, uh, the way that, that it plays out is, is it says in the original Greek, submit to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. And it seems like what Paul intentionally does is does, he doesn't put the word submit there in the original Greek because what he's wanting to show the people of God is that this is a continuation from that previous statement. Submit to one another in the fear of the God, how, in the fear of the Lord. How does this work out? Wives to your husbands. The, the, and he, does, he actually does the same thing in, in uh, verse 24. In verse 24, and that's why I reading you from the New King James Version, because what it captures here for us, in verse 24, it says, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In the original Greek, there is actually no other be subject to your own husbands there. But again, I, I don't envy the job of the Bible translator, because how are you supposed to show a natural flow of the way that English uh, grammatical sentence structures work, right? Paul writes kind of, a, he writes an incomplete sentence for us. And so what we do to try to, try to be faithful translators of the Bible, we inject that word submit there, and then what ends up happening is that it looks like a complete sentence, and we pull that out, and it says, wives, submit to your husbands. You say, look, read Ephesians 5, chapter Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 22, wives submit to your husbands. It's like, wait a minute. You're, you're putting a period in there where there was a comma. Submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands. It, it, it's, it's an outflow. It's a wives submit to your husbands, and verse 22, wives submit to one another. Verse 22 is... Yes, it's, it's a bullet point from that, and so is verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Both of them are a bullet point under submit to one another. Here's, here's the next observation. Paul connects head with salvation. This, is, this one's... It, man, I wish we had... 10 weeks on this. Um, I, I, I put a QR code for, a, for um, an article by this incredible website called The Junior Project. 
um, and, it's called, and it's wrestling with how Paul turns headship on its head. And, and this article is, is saying, like, how does Paul, for the context of the church of Ephesus, where, where the rest of the, the, their culture around them is looking at the way that they're running their households, and how do they live with wisdom in a way where God is making male and female equal, but the world around them is saying men are superior to women. And so how do you do that? There's an article that kind of is trying to wrestle with that again. But here's the observation that I, I want to make is, is that when we define the word head, like if we were to open an English dictionary, we would, we, our primary definition would be head equals authority. And Paul has an opportunity to connect head with authority. But the way that verse 23 flows is, for the husband is the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church. This is what I mean by that. What does head mean? He's the Savior. Here's, I want to read this quote to you. The fact that Paul has modeled all three phrases after one another makes it clear that Paul places Savior in opposition, connects it to head, to show that he intends head to be understood as equivalent in the meaning to Savior. If Paul intended to convey head in the sense of authority, he would have said, he being the authority of the body. But his following description of Christ's relationships to the body states nothing about authority, but recounts how Christ loved and gave himself for the church to make her holy, to purify her, to feed her, and to care for her. These are the actions of a savior, the source of life and nourishment of his body, the church. Paul caused the husband to imitate Christ's action in relation to his own wife, not to assume authority over her. Whew. That's a lot to wrestle with a lot to wrestle with. And I'll, I'll say this, listen, my own personal view is what I call, is what's called an egalitarian view of marriage. It's my own personal view. I will confess, there are smarter people than me that hold to what's called a complementarian view of marriage. And that, that is what is, another word is, I, I don't want to use the word traditional because is Paul traditional and how's he defining things? But anyways, is, is this statement that the husband exercises authority over the wife, that he's a position and headship is primarily defined as authority. There are smarter people in the, in the family of God that view this passage and other passages and conclude in a complementarian view of marriage. I, I'm persuaded that what Paul is up to in this passage specifically is that what he's doing is he's bringing humanity back to the garden. And by that, what I mean is this. What he's doing is that there was no striving in the garden. There was no grasping for authority over one another. And the statement in the garden of Adam and Eve was that they were naked and unashamed. That meant that they can be completely vulnerable with one another and know that there was going to be care 
and know that there was going to be provision and know that there was going to be love and that know that that no one was just was going to try to lord authority over one another but it was after the fall it was after the fall that god says listen the curse that's going to be upon you guys is there's going to be striving there's going to be this constant you're trying to rule over and you're trying to grasp authority and you're trying to and that's what's taking place and i believe what paul is doing here by saying submit to one another saying let's get back to the garden where we could be completely vulnerable with each other and 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 listen whether whether or not it's almost like however you want to view it if you want to view the marriage and if you want to approach a marriage from a complementarian point of view or if you want to view the marriage from an egalitarian point of view the conclusion you have to make from this passage is that what it looks like for the husband to be the head, it means that he becomes the servant. It means that he places his life under. And what it means to live this out, he's using, he's using that word savior, he's using an exodus motif. The, the salvation of Israel was what? And, the, and our salvation is for what? For our liberation is for our freedom, is for our flourishing. So the idea here, husbands would be, you, you live in, in such a way, and, and you, can, you could even go to this extreme. You can go to say, husband, you're the head, which means that you are all about your wife's liberation. You're all about her freedom. And this is never about superiority. This is the, the world around you may operate in superiority. Not in our households. Not in how we relate with one another. You place yourself under. Let's go to the next. Let's go to the next area. I'm gonna start flying a bit a bit faster here. Again, I'm trying to be delicate with some of these areas, but um, submit to one another. One of the bullet points under that would be husbands, love your wives. Bullet point under that, an observation is here. There is way more instruction to the husband, right? Just natural observation. It's like Paul has this assumption, husbands, you need to learn more. <laughs> I don't know if that's, that's exactly what he's saying, but the reality is, is that, listen, what this looks like to submit to one another is because this would be world-altering for the church in Ephesus. They would be saying, expand upon this. I'm the husband. I know myself to be superior. So what do you mean that I've got to submit to one another? And so that's why Paul gives way more definition to them because it's like there's way more to, to, un, to, to learn and to unlearn for them. Not only that, but when you look at this, this do you even realize that the, the instruction to the wife is what the husband should do? Right? Like the statement to the wife is, is uh, he is the savior of the body. Like what does it look like? What's the, what's the learning point for the wife? It, it, what the learning point for the wife is, is that the husband has to be the one that serves. That's the learning point for her. And then the learning point for the husbands, he just expands upon in way more detail. Let's make observation number two. 
observation one, number two, look at the verbs assigned to the husband. Look at the verbs given to the husband. Husbands love, husbands sanctify and cleanse with washing in such a way that there's no spot or wrinkle. Husbands nourish, husbands cherish. If you were just to come across those verbs, Larissa's doing Duolingo, and a lot of times one of the things that they do is like connect this to this definition and this to that definition. If you were to have husbands and wives, if you were to think about these verbs, which one would you kind of assume would be applied to the wife? Cleaning, washing, nourishing, cherishing. Paul is giving verbs to the husband that sound a whole lot like the traditional wife's role in the house. Whew. <laughs> There's tension there. There's tension there. But what it looks like, husbands, what it looks like is, is it looks like this. It kind of looks like washing clothes. Husbands, what does it look like? It kind of looks like feeding your home, making the dinner. What does it look like? It kind of looks like writing love poetry. Can you imagine a men's retreat that was built upon these verbs? <laughs> Faith community men, this is what we're going to be about. This is what our, this is what our, this is what our, what our men's retreat is going to be about. We are going to call it Cleaning, nourishing, and cherishing. That's what we're going to call our men's retreat. And our breakouts are going to be doing laundry, baking pies, and writing poetry. That's what our breakouts are going to be. You know what the other the verbs also sound like? It also sounds like the roles of the kids and the slaves in, in, in the Roman household. One of the things that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 is that you're going to live in such a way that exposes the, the, the ways of the darkness around you. You're going to live in such a way that the world's going to look at your households and they're going to conclude the way that you live is so much different than how we live. Let, let me also highlight this. In this same observation, Paul also ascribes these verbs to the way Jesus treats us. Jesus cherishes. Jesus nourishes. Jesus cleans. And the uncomfortable nature of those words given to Jesus are the way that Peter felt so uncomfortable on the night that his feet were being washed. Jesus, this is how you approach me? This is how you treat me. 
friends, if Jesus were to, if you were to see him walk into this space right now, he'd walk in with bucket and sponge in hand. And he'd posture himself below you. And you would be wildly uncomfortable by the posture that he takes in front of you. He loves you and he cares for you in ways that you cannot even begin to comprehend. He's better than you know. And husbands are given the honor and responsibility to be an incarnate Jesus, an incarnate Jesus in the household. We are called to take that same posture. Let's keep going. Observation three is the theme of oneness. Paul looks at this section, he zooms in in this section, he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. This is a great mystery. And, and, and the imagery here is, is this, is that, that what happens in the Garden of Eden is there's one, and out of the one, God makes two, and the call upon the two is that they would become one. And when you look at the call upon Abraham, the call upon Abraham was, Abraham, you are one, and out of you, I'm going to make a multitude, and the call upon that multitude is to be a one. And then you realize that the call to the church, call to the church is, is that there is this one man, Jesus, and out of this one man, Jesus, there will be many, a multitude that are called, and the calling upon that multitude is that they would become one. And so what God is doing here by pointing to the husband and the wife is to say, listen, amongst your, you have your differences. You re differences remain between the man and the woman. Differences still exist there, but the call upon them is that they would, they would live out oneness. And it's the same call upon all of us in how we relate to one another. And the call, again, is not uniformity, but it's unity. All right, let's keep on going. Uh, children, obey your parents. Observation one and one just simply stayed. It, the children are addressed. The children are talked to. If you read through, go back, we're not going to go back to it, but if you went and looked at the, the quote from Aristotle, who's talked to? The patriarch. Only the patriarch is addressed. In Paul's letter, who's talked to? And who's talked to first? The wife is talked to first, the children are talked to first, and the slave are talked to first. And, and just by the fact that the children are dressed means they have a place at the table. They're in the room. They are seen as part of the saints in the room. Observation number two, in the Lord for this is right. And the instruction to the children to obey their parents is you do so with your eyes on me. You, you do so because you are, you are assured that in our households, you're cared for. And, and the Greco-Roman cultures around you, you don't have status. You have no say. You've just got to obey 
our households. This is all done as an act of trust to the Lord. This is all under his headship, his caring for us. Observation number three, I think, yes, that it may be well with y'all. And, and, and listen, right, this is, this is, I'll try to f- flesh this out a bit, but, uh, and, and somewhat quickly, is we might just read, hey, children, obey your parents, because if you do, it'll go well for you, right? Obey your parents because, because you'll just, like, just be quiet and obedient, and there'll be peace. And a lot of times it's, that's said in a way so that there'll be peace for the parent, Right? It's not thinking about going well for the kid. It's just like, but what's, what's happening here in this, in this flow that Paul uses is child, children, be obedient to your parents. And if you do so, if we have that kind of culture in our community, it'll go well for all of us. This is what that means. Children, you are endowed with responsibility in the body of Christ. You you have a say. In, In a sense, you have a position of authority in this community because if you do things in the Lord, guess what? You are going to have a positive impact on the body of believers. And, and what Paul does by doing that, he elevates the children. Children, if you do this, do you know the difference you can make in our community? And it's this assumption then the body of Christ lives with that we assume, we believe, we have expectation that our kids make a difference in our community. They are endowed with responsibility and authority in our community that things can go well for us, all of us, when the kids are believed in. Uh, Let's move to the next one, fathers. Fathers do not provoke is is the application of what it looks like to submit. And that alone is a statement, a sentence that is very difficult to say. Fathers do not provoke is an application of submitting. Anyways, observation number one, the father changes his actions for the sake of the child. The father is changing his behaviors. The father is changing how he's acting. The father is changing his attitudes for the sake of the children. And sometimes the way that we approach things is the father is the immovable object that everyone else has to adjust around. You have to learn how to live in my household. But the application here is, fathers, you've got to do the changing. That's challenging. (laughs) There's a lot of tension there. There's a lot of tension there. But here's the other thing that I would also ascribe to what Paul is saying here. In order to not to provoke your kids to wrath, you actually have to know what's going on in their emotions. 
you actually have to be able to read their face. And the picture here is of a father face to face with his child. I can read what makes you angry. I know you so well, I know what frustrates you. I know what's upsetting you right now. I know what's causing tension in your life. The imagery here is the father stooping down and living face to face with his child. Here's the other observation. Observation number two for this section is the child is a disciple. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that, listen, raise them up, them, girls and boys, in our homes, who, Greco-Roman culture, are the women students? No. In our homes, we view the young girls as disciples of Jesus. In our homes, in our homes, the kids are being raised up. In our homes, the boys and the girls. Because what I'm reading in Acts chapter 2 is when the Spirit of God falls upon the church, we are told that your daughters and your sons will prophesy. And we are going to steward those gifts in our homes. Okay. Computer closed on me. Um, and then let's, let's move to, to slaves and masters. Submit to one another. Again, to emphasize, this is no small thing. The slave's at the table. The slave is sitting there as equal in this household. They're being addressed. They're in the rooms. I mean, you imagine. You're new to the body of believers. You are new to following Jesus. You get invited into a home gathering. And when you get invited into this home gathering, you step into the room and they tell you, you're, by the way, you're a Roman centurion, right? You walk into this room, you're a Roman centurion, you confessed faith in Jesus. You're sitting there with, with, your, your, with your young teenage boy, your, your arms around him, and it's like, yeah, let's go into this new body of believers. And we walk into the room and, and the host of the room, Timothy, looks at you and he says, hey, so glad you guys are here. There's a seat right there next to Onesimus. And you look at Onesimus and you realize he's a slave. You would be floored. You, 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 your world would be flipped upside down. What do you, what do you, you, I'm sitting next to? And then as you're wrestling with that in this body of believers as, as they have dinner with one another, Onesimus grabs the bread and he turns to you and then you're invited to break bread with one another to eat together. L listen, listen, what I would want Paul to do, I think what we would all want Paul to do in, 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 this, um, in this context is that he would, what he would do is say, hey, slaves, you're no longer slaves. In our homes, you're free. 
it, it, would, it, would, it would be much nicer if, if Paul just wrote that out. And, 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 the, and the tension in this, but I, but I believe what Paul is doing is he's subverting the way of the culture around him. Because what's going to happen amongst the body of believers is as they continue to treat one another as brothers in the Lord, it is going to erode the jaws of slavery. They're not going to treat one another that way. There's all, and again, there's all kinds of tension in this. Because if Paul were to just write to them and say, hey, slaves, be, you're free, they're going to be killed the next day. And, and so it's this place of, of, it takes wisdom and discernment of how do we, how do we live this out of, as body of believers? Because what we're being told, again, the big theme of, of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is you are one. There is no superiority here. And then you live in this tension of, but there's slaves and there's masters in our gathering. It's like, the slave's going to sit at the table. And they're going to be equal. There's no hierarchy. The, the question from the master would be like, that doesn't make him a slave anymore. <laughs> and the response would probably be, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Observation number two for the slave is that there would be sincerity of heart. And, and I think that the challenge there, right, amidst the tension that exists is that as you're a slave and you have a master, but you're called brothers in the body of Christ, is that there's likely going to be a lot of bitterness in your heart. And what Paul says to the slave is, in the secret place of your heart, where no one else will know what's happening there, just you and Jesus will, what's happening there. Because you, you can have an exterior action of loving and honoring your brother. But what's happening in the sincere place of your heart? I think the application for us is in these places of our life where there's where these, these areas where, where how we treat one another and how we relate with one another, I can act as a good Christian. But what's happening in the secret place of my heart? And we, we we don't know when we look at one another what's happening there. But Paul's instruction is you've got to visit that secret place. Uh, another, the, the next observation for the next one is masters do the same. I mean, this might be the most subversive and powerful sentence in this entire section. Submit to one another. Paul addresses the slaves. You're going to serve your master. And then Paul's next statement to the master is, you act the exact same way. You do the exact same thing. You know what that makes them? A slave. <laughs> it makes them a slave. 
But the imagery that's given to the, to the church is, what if Jesus was in your field? What if he was the servant? That's how you're to treat your brother. That's how you're to treat your brother. And then the next statement, the next observation is you both have the same master. You both have the same master. And what Paul does there by, by making that statement is what he's teaching them. Listen, if you both have the same master, that makes you equal. That puts you on the same playing field. And what it means for your relationship to one another, it means that you're equal. And then here's the conclusion to it all. Here's the, by the way, this is the 17th observation. Um, I counted them. It's 17 observations that we got through today. Is this. There is no partiality with Jesus. And, and the application point for us is the same should be said of us. It, it should be said of his, his body. There is no, who do we belong to and where do we reside? We are in him and there is no partiality in him. Church, the way that we treat and regard one another, it looks like Jesus. And so at any point, if there's signs of division, if, if, if there is places of, of fracture amongst us, if there's any jealousy or comparison, if there's any of that that exists with one another, we are to be reminded there is no partiality in Jesus, and that radically changes how we have life together. Church, would you stand with me? Jesus, you are better than we know. You're better than we know. My hope for us is that we would be a spirit-influenced people that have the ability to discern how to live out faithfully your word. That we, that we would approach one another where we would make space for one another's faults, make space for each other to make mistakes. But as that happens, Lord, that we would encourage each other, sharpening one another with our places of difference. That as we have life together, Lord, that, that what's going to happen is as we rub up against one another, Lord, that we would be made to be more like you. Lord, if, if for any places that there is potential for division because of the ways that we view even your word, Lord, would, would, would our love always be bigger than our problems? Would our belonging to one another always be the motivator for how we have dialogue and relationship with each other. Would you teach us to love? Lord, we want to be faithful followers of you.
I pray that this week ahead, Lord, that you would continue to be giving your people wisdom so that they might be able to live faithfully in whatever their context might be. Jesus, we are heading into Thanksgiving, and I think about the fact that we're going to be around family members and friends that view the world a whole lot different than us. But as we sit at those tables, may we embody the way and the character of Jesus. May we be a different kind of people. May we be a people that, that extend love and hospitality to the people around us. When we sit at tables this week ahead, Lord, would you show us what it is to take on a posture of humility and grace? And then, Lord, for any parents in this room, Lord, I pray that you would continue to give us wisdom in how to, to be with our kids face to face. For any husbands and wives in this space, Lord, I pray that you might give us the ability, the discernment, and the strength to know what it is to look to bless and serve one another. And for anyone in the workplace this week, I know that's not a direct application of slave and masters, but Lord, for anyone that has any kind of authority over another or anyone that that is under the authority of somebody else when we think about the structures that we live in, Lord, would we live like Jesus? Would we live like you? And so we pray that in your name. Amen? Amen. Amen.